is your first time joining us, a very special shout out to you. I'm Danny Smith, and uh, as Ed Stevens, the Global Director of Safety for ABB says, where humans are, you'll find human error and you'll find the need for safe start. And Ed would certainly know since ABB employs uh, roughly 144,000 people across the globe. But even ABB doesn't operate at the South Pole. And yet, well, people are there, so so is human error. And thinking about it, I guess now we can say that as well that Safe Start now has uh, helped people on all seven continents, which I think is a pretty interesting claim now. Uh, and here to talk about how Safe Start has been used in what many people would say is probably one of the harshest environments anywhere on the world uh, at the South Pole is today's guest, Mike Zernick. And Mike oversees Ice Cube Upgrade Safety and is based at the University of Madison, uh, University of Wisconsin Madison. Said that backwards. Sorry about that. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Mike. Great to talk with you. Oh, Danny. Hey, thanks for the invitation. You know, I'm excited to spend some time with you and your listeners to talk to you about safety at the South Pole. Yeah, true confession time here, I guess. Uh, you know, I guess I'm a bit of a science geek. And when I heard that you were using Say Start at the South Pole, uh, uh, just kind of really got my blood pumping, I guess, you know, so I guess let's get some of my, uh, my questions about the South Pole out of the way, because my listeners probably have some of the same things that they would ask as well. Uh, before we talk about how your team is using Safe Start there. Uh, I know, first of all, everybody's mind probably automatically goes to, uh, well, just how cold is it there, right? Well, it's cold For, in the first place. <laughs> It sounds oxymoronic here in a way, but the sun doesn't set at all during nostril summer, you know, but in Antarctica, of course, the continent, it lives up to its chilly reputation. Um, summer maximums across the continent, you know, rarely exceed minus 20 C. That's minus 4 F in Fahrenheit. Yeah. Wow. Um, the only exception is the coast where highs occasionally rise above zero C, which is 32 F and particularly on the Antarctic Peninsula and McMurdo, where we launch out of on the coast, falls into that category too. Wow. Um, in the winter, sea ice envelops the continent and Antarctica is plunged into months of darkness, literally uh, 24 hour, 24 seven darkness. The monthly mean temperature at the South Pole in the winter hovers around minus 60 C, which is minus 76 F. Along the coast, winter temperatures range between minus 15 and minus 20 C, which is positive five and negative four F. Mm. Uh, lowest temperature recorded there was a surface temperature of minus 93.2 C. That's a whopping minus 135.8 Fahrenheit for, for us Americans. That's, that's cold. That makes my bones hurt <laughs> just yeah, thinking exactly. about it. Uh, yeah. So how in the world do you get there? I mean, it's not like you can just, uh, you know, jump the, the quick shuttle flight down there, I suppose, no. right? Yeah, they canceled that one. You know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, to get to the South Pole, first you got to get to, uh, we go through New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And then from New Zealand, we deploy to McMurdo Station, which is the, U I mentioned, the U.S. base on the coast of Antarctica and the Ross Ice Shelf there. Um, and then from McMurdo, uh, we go on to Pole. Bummer about that is my frequent flyer miles <laughs> accumulation ends in New Zealand. You know, the Air National Guard who flies us to McMurdo and to Pole, they don't give frequent flyer miles. So <laughs> tough, tough, tough lesson there. 
Yeah. And that sounds like that's a, still a lot of your journey is like you get a journey to get to, to New Zealand and then you still got a lot to go even then, right? Yeah, because it's anywhere between a five and eight hour plane trip flight from New Zealand to McMurdo and then wow. another three hours um, from McMurdo to the coast or to the pole rather, sorry. Jeez. Wow. So that's yeah. another, another full day, essentially. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> now you were telling me as well, in case any of our listeners are interested in going to the poll, there are some, uh, some private commercial deals that can get you there, but uh, it's a little pricey. Huh? In case you're interested, they do have um, commercial flights available, but it'll cost you somewhere between 30 and 40,000, depending upon what wow. you're doing per person to fly there. You can take all the pictures around. You watch at the pole, and then you turn around <laughs> and come back. And I've seen it. It's right next to the South Pole Station. They have it all set up. They have tents and everything set up for these people. But you know, it costs. It'll cost you some money to just come. <laughs> I suppose the road trip is out of the question then. Here, yeah. I, I, was, I was hoping for a field trip with this one. Uh, so I guess uh, what is that? Is that uh, just to get New Zealand? I was looking last night just as we were researching that. That's a, a long flight just to get there. You mentioned uh, yeah. four flights, right? And then you've got yeah. to go another day after that. Yeah, because we'll fly fourteen hours from the west coast to normally to Auckland, New Zealand. And then we got another two-hour flight from Auckland to Christchurch, where we deploy out of. It's about a 30-hour trip just to Christchurch. Then we, then we stay in Christchurch from two to three days, maybe, mm-hmm. getting our equipment in order. Uh, and, of course, trying to arrange a flight because, you know, logistics is tricky. Planes break down. Weather's always an issue in Antarctica. Sure. Um, it can change at the drop of a hat, too. Like, I was on a flight once from McMurdo to Pole, we got two thirds of the way there. We had to come back because wow. all of a sudden a windstorm and everything developed at the, the South Pole is like blizzard conditions. So, and they do that. Safety is important. You don't want to force a landing in inclement weather like that. So how many times have you been to the Pole? A total of seven trips to the South Pole over the course of 15 years. Wow. Um, and, uh, you know, it's very interesting experience, you know, not many people can say they've been to the pole multiple times. Sure. That, that's... Uh, um, it's been rewarding. It's the best job I've ever had. Yeah. And I would imagine safety is on the whole, not just the flight getting there, but just safety really has to just take on uh, really a whole new meaning when you're. That oh, far sure does. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as, as it turns out, you know, um, help <laughs> medical help mm-hmm. <laughs> is a long, long way away. I, you know, where there's a clinic for triage type, stuff at the south pole basic you know first aid that kind of stuff mm-hmm. but the nearest trauma facility is over 22 hours away in christchurch wow. um new zealand it's not a place you want to get seriously hurt you know here at the pole you that's why we take extra precautions with safe start and, and other programs we have there too we work closely with um okay there's asc is our uh um, logistics support provider for pole you know they house us they feed us get us our flights and everything. Um, they have a safety officer down there too. So I kind of work hand in hand with that individual to make sure that both the, the powers that be at the South Pole and the ISQ project are on the same page in terms of safety. Um, and we're, we're, you know, working off the same sheet, same procedures or the ones that aren't the same dovetail, you know, that kind of thing, just to make sure that safety is a, a, a way of life. Sure. <laughs> 
So even like it's almost like a multi-employer worksite that you would see here in the U.S. or in other parts of the world where you've got, sure. you know, multiple people, multiple groups that are working there. That makes perfect sense. You know, when we were talking the other day, Mike, you were telling me about an incident that you had personally uh, involving a ladder there, there at the South Pole. Uh, well, it really had some pretty serious uh, injury potential there, right? Yeah. Um, what uh, happened is that I guess it comes to the old adage that <laughs> we all have close calls, right? We all have near misses. You know, and this one particularly, you know, it, it involved me alone with a ladder. Uh, you know, we have a, a drill camp, a seasonal equipment site that supports the drill, filled with these buildings called MDSs. They're mobile drilling stations. Um, they're only nine feet tall, but they look like railroad cars or 30 foot containers, what have you. Uh, but they're only, again, nine feet. So I figured, okay, I needed to go up on top of one of them and check something. So I grabbed a ladder. And of course, having used the ladder like hundreds of times probably in my life. Sure. Um, you know, I, I, I opened up the feet like I always do late. So it was flashed to the burn and started climbing the ladder. I put, propped it up there. You know, the ladder was over three feet above the top, no problems. Um, and then I was just climbing the ladder and all of a sudden, uh-oh, the feet started to slip out from under me. I'm about... Wow two thirds of the way up the ladder. And I realized, Oh, I'm going down. So I flipped my legs up the rest of the way <laughs> and got onto the roof. What, meanwhile, watching the ladder slide down and clatter to the burn. Wow. The burn, by the way, is frozen hard, like asphalt, compact snow, you know? Mm. Um, so I'm up there. Of course, somebody gets a ladder, holds it and I get down, but it could have been a lot worse. It's amazing when you think about that, you know, you know and think about that in terms of safe start. I mean, uh, you know, a bit of complacency there. Is that fair oh, to definitely. say? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, that's the main state of mind was complacency because, you know, I really wasn't in a hurry or frustrated or tired yeah. even. You know, I, it, it was just, hey, I've done this hundreds of times. Yeah. It's the problem, you know, no big deal. Sure. Um, and of course, the sense of complacency, I, I did make some a critical error. You know, first of all, I think anytime somebody steps on a ladder, wherever you are, you're putting your body in the line of fire, right? I mean, it's sure. potential energy, all that stuff. You know, gravity is not your friend kind of thing, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> but on top of that, you know, I, I did definitely, I lost traction from sure. the ladder. You know, I mean, yeah. that, and that's simply because, you know, I probably there was some perhaps critical error reduction techniques I could have been thinking about. Like, for example, I should have paid more attention to the good habits of others, you know, um, who have successfully used ladders at pole. There's a way to do it. You know, you don't put the feet down, you dig the corners of the ladder into the, uh, the berm, which is almost like ice, but it's not, it's hard snow. Mm -hmm. um, and typically then also, I in a sense, I violated one of my own policies that I developed <laughs> there is the idea is when someone else climbs a ladder, someone else holds the ladder in place. We always do that for each other. Yeah, just as a safety valve. Sure. Well, I didn't have my safety valve in place either. So yeah. like I said, it, <laughs> I could have gotten hurt. Yeah. Know, fortunately, it didn't work out that way this time. And as you said earlier, it's a long, long way from, from serious help if you have to have serious oh, help. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so tell me a little bit about what your team is doing there at the pole. It just sounds fascinating. Okay. Well, between the years of 2004 and 2011, we built and continue to operate the Ice Cube Neutrino Observatory at the South Pole. 
the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which receives funding from the NSF or National Science Foundation, is the lead institution for the project. So we're in the project office mm-hmm. here in Madison. There are more than 50 institutions from 14 countries in the Ice Cube collaboration. Construction on the project involved drilling up, say, approximately a two-foot diameter hole using a hot water drill. It operated at about 190 degrees Fahrenheit at 1,000 PSI. And they drilled, and we drilled down nearly 2,500 meters. Another 500 meters, you hit bedrock. <laughs> we didn't wow. want to hit the bedrock. Uh, I didn't think of Antarctica as being that far above sea level. Mm-hmm. But when, where, where we drill at the South Pole, it's 10,000 feet above sea level. So not only is it freezing cold, it, it makes it much more difficult to breathe while you're working. So sure. planning has, training's got to be more robust. Planning's got to be more robust because sometimes you get a little fuzzy. You know, oh, I can imagine. Altitude. Yeah. Uh, I'm thinking about those times, you know, I visited out in Colorado a good bit uh, and just driving up in the mountains there when you start getting at those higher elevations that are a, a little oxygen deficient. Uh, first of all, that's rough on a big guy like me, but uh, just in general, like you said, your mind does get a little fuzzy and you just can't think clearly, right? It's it's really oh. interesting how that happens, right? I pulled this directly from your website and see if I can get through this uh, sure. properly here. Uh, so. Ice cube detects light emitted by charged particles that are produced when a single neutrino crashes into a proton or neutron inside an atom. Uh, I feel like Sheldon off the Big Bang Theory here doing this. Uh, (laughs) The resulting nuclear reaction produces a secondary particles or particles rather that travel then at high speed faster than light in the ice itself. And it gives off a a blue light then uh, that's called uh, Sharinkov. Did I get that right? Yeah, Shikorinkov radiation. Shikorinkov radiation, yeah. Uh, And in case our listeners want to look that up, it's C-H-E-R-E-N-K-O-V. And basically what happens then is the neutrinos uh, that you detect, your project detects, they they come all the way from the edge of the the universe. And they're really like fingerprints that help us to understand the objects and phenomena where those neutrinos are produced. All right, so I read that, as I said, from your website. Um, Mike, what the heck did I just say? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Explain that to us in layman's terms. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, I'm definitely a layman in this case because I have, I'm not a physicist and I have a lot of respect for the, the particle physicists on this project because they, they know this stuff inside and out. And it's a it's wonderful science. You know, it's, it's just yeah. amazing what they've done. Um, first of all, that Cherenkov radiation, too, by the way, if you've ever seen pictures of nuclear reactors, there is a bluish glow. That's That also is Cherenkov radiation. To try to explain this, in terms I understand too, uh, we need cosmic messengers. That's a good way to put that, to tell us what's going on in the universe. You know, the first astronomers used only their eyes sure. to explore the night sky. You know, then optical telescopes came along and made it possible to see fainter objects that, that, than you can see with the naked eye. We now have electronic eyes that see all types of light from radio waves to gamma rays. Um, They're making discoveries, revealing a hidden universe. Like, you know, for example, like x-rays show your supporting skeleton. Sure. Ice Cube sees it in an entirely new way with neutrinos, just another cosmic messenger that like, like visible light, but much harder to capture. In fact, it's taken a billion tons of instrumented ice. That's our detector, right? to see about 10 neutrinos in an hour. 
then you have to be even more patient and wait for the neutrinos that come from deep space. We only identify about a hundred of these neutrinos a year. So it's a patience, but it's, again, it's looking at the universe in a new way. The same, the same artifacts, black holes, supernovas, the big, the, the walls in the universe, which have been seen already through the study of dark matter. Um, but our neutrino detector just looks at all of that from a different perspective, let's just say, hoping to learn, gain new knowledge and understanding of the universe, what's going on. Wow, that's that's amazing. And I guess, again, the science geek in me just kind of kind of mm -hmm. geeks out a bit there. I guess I use the word geek too many times there in one sentence. But uh, the other thing you mentioned uh, as we were preparing for this uh, podcast was uh, just how many folks you have there at the poll at various times when you're doing projects. Uh, so uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the staffing there, both during the construction and during just the operational phases like yeah. you're in right now. Yeah, during, you know, Ice Cube Gen 1, uh, that was the project that last went from about 2002, 2003 till 2011. The construction phase ended. The, the, the science continues, of course. But um, so construction was between 2004 and 2011. And um, at the poll at that time, now, that's just counting not only Ice Cube, but ASC folks and folks from other projects. It was about, it ranged from 200 to 250 people at times, which is quite a lot of people for the poll. Sure, sure. Um, but, uh, and that's during the summer. In the, in the Austral summer is November through February, basically, in that mm -hmm. range. Um, currently, though, though, we do have a couple of people we call winter overs who stay there year-round. And in the winter, there's only about 35 to 40 people total at poll. Um, and these, uh, you know, most of these are ASC folks who help with the logistics and the maintenance of the facilities. The ice cube winter overs carry on experiments, take readings, keep the computers up and running, basically maintain the detector. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, I'm always interested as well just to hear how um, how people kind of came to Safe Start, if you will. Uh, you told me that you were using a, another kind of behavior-based safety system. Uh, and just wanted something that people would find a bit more relatable when you found Safe Start, right? Yeah. Um, well, it's not that we were using the traditional behavior basic. That was one first one we tried in a sense. Mm -hmm. You're right. We considered it, got some basic training in it. And, and like I mentioned, it's it. People were having trouble relating to it because it didn't seem as customizable for our needs. Mm -hmm. And that's always best when it comes to training. You know, put it in terms is environments where people that are being trained are going to work because then it makes more sense to them. I looked for something, you know, that people could relate to more and found Safe Start because I think Safe Start is totally flexible and sure. you can format it and you can customize it for pretty much any scenario we have, um, especially the drilling camp and, and the operations around that. Um, the great thing about Safe Start, it works for everybody, you know, we even did some training for our office staff because, sure. you know, they're people too, and they need help yeah. <laughs> as well. <laughs> yeah. um, and I, I'll share one so quick story too is see, even in the office, things can be dangerous. You know, we, one company I was at, we had somebody who wrenched her knee in her office running away from a mouse that she saw <laughs> wow. um, in our ice cube project office. We had a, a one of the, the scientists there was, a lot of people ride bikes to and from, whether it's out to lunch, to and from home, whatever. Well, he happened to be riding his bike back into the, the building. Um, 
and uh, there was some construction going on the street. So he was watching the construction and, it was, and he was turning into the garage door, um, didn't realize that the garage door was closing. Uh, oh. So he drove into it and it hit the top of his head, knocked him off his bike. Fortunately for him, he just ended up with a, a slightly wrenched neck and stuff. And, but wow. you know, that's a learning lesson. Pay attention, eyes on task. You don't mind on task. Don't be yeah. thinking about construction when you're yeah. trying to enter the building. So yeah. we think about distracted driving. Uh, I guess we don't think about distractions on a, on a bike, but I guess it's a, uh, very applicable there as well, right? Maybe even more rules so. apply. No? <laughs> <laughs> sure. So now that you've been using Safe Start for uh, the last few years with the uh, Ice Cube Gym One project uh, and and beyond, uh, you shared your just your safety performance over that time. Uh, I think our listeners would be really interested in hearing just just how this worked for you. We started Safe Start this, using the Safe Start Safety Program in Ice Cube during Gen One. Um, for the last three years or so of the project. Um, and um, earlier on, you know, we would be experiencing, say, half a dozen reportable uh, lost time type injuries. Um, once we implemented Safe Start, we dropped down to zero recordables and only one lost time, lost time injury over the last three seasons. And that was that lost time injury was still a minor incident, but he did lose some, you know, more than a shift, I guess. Right. As for the Ice Cube upgrade project, since 2019, and that was the last year we deployed, we have experienced zero lost time or OSHA reportable injuries at pole. Wow, that's awesome. Because we still have our winter overs there, right? And sure. they're, of course, subject to injury as well. You know, oh, I'm sure, I'm sure. And they've received their safe start training as well. That's nice. Yeah, Micah, I guess we're uh, we're kind of running out of time here. I really appreciate you spending some time with us here. Any any kind of final thoughts here for us? Mm, well, you know, I think one good thing too, uh, using Safe Start, just recognizing the old state to error pattern in others, you know, and others watching others work, learning from it. I also have watched others and learned good things too. You know, I mean, oh sure, and in one. Uh, uh, it's, I, I guess the word is it's a it's the rule the governing rule in safety is it's really the buddy system in a sense you know we don't work by ourselves isolated anywhere at South Pole because it's too dangerous everyone has radios you know and that kind of thing but the other thing is we watch each other's backs sure you can count on it you know because it's not just we watch each other just to learn for ourselves but we pay attention to each other too because. Yeah. Nobody wants to get hurt. And then, then we develop that kind of a team where we work together, we count on each other, and we get through the harsh environment at the pole. You know? yeah. It kind of goes back to that, that cert that we talk about, looking at others for risk patterns, right? It, it's, it helps us become more aware ourselves. It helps us to fight complacency in ourselves. But as you said, it also gives us an opportunity to, to intervene when it's a you know, a coworker, uh, or if it's yeah. not at work, a friend or a family member, even uh, when we see that state to error pattern starting to become obvious with them, we can step in and keep them from getting hurt. And it, it is, as you said, kind of the buddy system there. And that's, that's huge. Right. And that's something oh, that we really yeah. use. Yeah. And the other thing with, you know, the interventions too, is it doesn't matter who you are in the organization. See a lot in a lot of times in the past, if my boss is out there doing something safe, am I going to try to correct him? <laughs> mm -hmm. Sounds sure. like career suicide, right? No, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, seriously, I, you know, we, yeah. you, it doesn't matter what level you are. 
Yeah. I'm a manager. Guess what? I get corrected by everybody every day. So, you know, it works. We talk. It begins the dialogue about safety. And I, yeah. I think that's the biggest thing with Safe Start. The whole eyes on task, mind on task, triggering on hazards, you know, keeps your mind in the safety game. Sure. And if you're thinking about safety, if you think about the next action you take and safety ramifications of it, then you're going to be safe. You're, you're, what, you become one hell of your own safety manager. <laughs> sure, that's it. And, uh, heck, I meant heck, sorry. We, we've had some other things we've had to edit out in the past. I think we can get by with that one. So I, I think we'll be cool with that one. Most of our listeners won't mind there. Uh, so, Mike, thanks so much for, for being with us today. Uh, this has really, sure. really been fascinating. Um, so if you'd like to keep up with Mike's team, uh, you can uh, check them out on their website. It's www.icecube.wisc.edu. So that's icecube.wisc.edu. Uh, and that's it for today. Mike, thanks again for spending time with us. And folks, if you would, uh, please share this episode with others. Find all your science geek friends out there and be sure to share it with them as well. For Safe Talk with Safe Start, I'm Danny Smith. Thanks for joining us today.